Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for co-op news, playthroughs, reviews, and today we are reviewing Hour of Need. What's up, Mike? How are you doing, Peter? I am awesome, man. How have you been? I'm good. I feel like the last time I was uh, on this with you, I had COVID. <laughs> yes, you definitely did. I'm certainly a lot better than that. I still got sort of a lingering cough, but uh, it's it's nice to have the whole family disease-free or somewhat disease-free uh, so far. Now, did anybody else in your family get it? Yeah, my nine-year-old. But then right now, both of the kids have like colds and one of them had a fever. They're both testing negative. I think it's just regular colds, but those aren't fun either, you know? Well, yes. Oh, man, to go right from COVID to a cold, like in springtime? Yeah. Well, it's full-on summer. What am I talking spring? That's crazy. I mean, not not saying anything, but my kids are still wearing masks at school and, like, none of the other kids are. So yeah, like, there's this, we're going to be back to normal of kids giving colds and flus and everything to each other. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, hey, it's almost Gen Con time. In fact, next weekend, I'm going to be at Gen Con. So I'm not sure what our next podcast is going to be. It may just be a Gen Con recap with uh, me and Jerry and maybe even Terrence. We'll see how that goes. You're not able to make Gen Con this year. Nothing to do with COVID, just in general. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I wouldn't like to go, but I have to very carefully choose when to leave my family, especially with the kids still being pretty young, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it definitely gets easier. Although I'm getting new dogs this Sunday and then I'm leaving for Gen Con on Wednesday. So it's like I'm leaving my wife with not one, but two newborn dogs. They're not newborns. They're going to be eight weeks old. But still, it's basically like having a baby at home. It's, you know, you have to walk them every two hours or whatever. It's it's no good. And I'm taking my son, too. So she has one less pair of helping hands because my son is actually helpful at this point at 14. So he's coming to Gen Con for his first time as well. That's awesome. I guess before we get to Gen Con, what have you been playing recently? A lot of Marvel Champions, let's be honest. (laughs) I've played a lot. And it's partially because we took a family vacation, and my daughter played Marvel Champions. There's a new hero out, Spider-Ham, who's kind of like got some jokey stuff on his cards. Like, you have to say certain things in a funny voice, or you got to like wiggle your body or do whatever. So they've kind of put some like humor into it. And she's just getting a kick out of playing that. I mean, she's 11. She's not like a little kid or anything, but she's still a little kid. Let's be honest. So that's gotten her into Marvel Champions. So now everyone in my family plays, except for my wife, I guess. We played once or twice, but pretty much everybody's now asking me to play Marvel Champions, which is great for me. Oh, yeah. Your favorite game. That's definitely a win. Yeah. I, I do have some other games, but all of them are competitive, to be honest. I'll talk a little bit about them, but you have anything else co-op solo? Yeah, well, my uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 12th anniversary this past weekend, and we uh, luckily my parents were able to help out, so we went away. So we played Fog of Love, which is mostly cooperative. There are like some competitive ways to play it, but I would pretty much call it a cooperative game. Right. We also played uh, Skulls of Sedlek, which is a button-shy game, kind of like placing cards, trying to get them adjacent to score and stuff. We played competitive, but I also tried out solo, and solo was pretty fun. We played some Soul Clover. But besides that, uh, outside of the anniversary, I've been spending a lot of time with Fire in the Lake. Have you heard of that one, Peter? I've heard of it. Is that a, what are they called? Like Root? Yeah, yeah, it's a coin game. Coin game. Okay, uh, yes. Maybe may the most famous slash most popular one. It's about the Vietnam War. 
Uh, let's be um, honest. I think Root is the most famous slash popular well, coin game. <laughs> if you, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's coin-ish. But certainly the resolution of Root is entirely different with everybody having a turn. Coin's whole thing is like that event card, choosing how you want to resolve the event card mechanic. Gotcha. But yeah, Fire in the Lake, uh, I'm going to be doing a playthrough in the next week or two. It's been tough. It's uh, the most complicated of the four coin games I've played at this point. And the, like, Atoma rules are always, like, just vague enough that it's kind of hard to figure out what they meant because they're just fitting them on tiny cards in this case. So I'm not sure if I'm going <laughs> to have fun recording the playthrough, but it's going to happen <laughs> yes. at some point. Yeah, yeah, Well, you know, we've got to do those two. Like, every once yes. in a while. They can't all be Oathsworn. Let's be honest. Yes. <laughs> well, this one was a lot, too, just because it's a big campaign game and I had to play through so many scenarios in a short amount of time. That game's still worth it. So worth yes. it. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but yeah, before we uh, get any deeper, I do want to take a minute to thank our amazing Patreon supporters. If you don't know, we have a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash one stop. We have uh, early access to most of our YouTube videos over there. And then I do two exclusive videos every month. This month, I ranked uh, non-KDM-style boss battlers, like not like Oswar, not like uh, things like Marvel Champions and Aeon's End, and kind of discussed the like pros and cons of each of them. I, I noticed and, you stopped uh, inviting me on there after the horror one that we did together. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> you, we've both been busy. You're, you're, you're welcome to come on for next month. And then uh, the next one I'm going to record, I think tomorrow, I've been playing a lot of cooperative video games with my kids. So I'm going to go into video games a little bit and I think review five or six cooperative games we've been playing recently. Some more cooperative and better than others, just for a little change of pace. Jerry actually asked me today, he's like, why don't you go into competitive games and like branch out your what audience or whatever? I'm like, dude, I'm not doing competitive games. I said, one thing I was thinking about, though, was potentially doing some of these like cooperative board games, which we've kind of done. But like even solo modes, since we do a lot of solo stuff, like Through the Ages for me is one of the best apps that has a, so and it's not a solo mode, but it is a board game, clearly. And the yeah. so solo mode on there is great. There's no automa because it's, all digital like it's on the ipad but that is to me one of the best solo experiences i've had i don't know if board gamers would i mean non-board gamers are clearly not going to play through the ages right so it's clearly a board game like i can't imagine anybody going hmm what's this app here and trying to figure out through the ages if they've never played a board game in their life so it's clearly a board game and it's a solo mode but it's just not one that's available physically so yeah kind of the same thing with interestingly also check games but uh the galaxy trucker app is friggin' phenomenal. Right. Like this little story-based, like varied kind of mission uh, mode of play is awesome. So I guess let us know both as a you know podcast listener and as a, a streamed listener. By the way, we are doing this live on our stream channel as well. So feel free to ask any questions if you have any uh, and you're in the audience out there. You know, we, we stick to co-op stuff and solo stuff, but I, I'm trying to decide in my head whether that fits or not, because then I would do more than just play Marvel Champions on the channel all the time. Let's be honest. If like if I could play some of those games, because some of those are some of my favorite games of all time. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I do want to thank a few specific Patreon supporters uh, this week. Josh G., Richard Mitchell and Tavito, Josh, Richard, Tavito. Uh, thank you. Thanks to everyone who supports. And don't forget, if you uh, can't support us financially, we understand times are tough. Uh, you can also just leave a review for the podcast on Apple. You can subscribe to the streaming channel and the regular channel. All that stuff helps, but we appreciate uh, all your support. 
So three more games I'm going to talk about real, real super quick because they're all competitive. One I've been playing is Soulforge, which is a head-to-head battler game where you like upgrade and level up your cards as you play. I only bought one starter deck for it, but I've had a lot of fun with that. You know that's one of my favorite genres of games. I've had a lot of fun. I certainly don't think I would choose it over Keyforge at this point or Summoner Wars. So there are a lot of those games that I would play above it at this point, but I still had fun for the amount I paid for it. So I'm glad I bought it and glad I got to experience it. The leveling up the cards is interesting and not as fiddly as I thought it would be. So that was something I was worried about because like it started off as a video game and then it went to a board game. And like the big thing for the video game was when you, whenever you play a card, you have to level it up. It's still the same for the board game, but it's not too bad because you only have a 10 card or 20 card deck, but you know which faction it's from and there's only like 10 of each faction. So it's it's not that many cards to dig through to, to actually level it up. The other one I played with my family was Trails. Still like in that game. We, we discovered that one last year at PAX. My good friend Henry is the designer on that one. So if you like light family games, it's really just going up and down trail, collecting resources, turning them in to get badges. But it's still a lot of fun. For those who don't know, if you've heard of Parks, Trails is kind of like the streamlined, simpler version of that. Yeah, and Henry designed both of those games. There's that. And then My Father's Works, the other one. So Jerry and I played that the other night, and that game's so good. I wish they had a solo or co-op or anything mode for it. The biggest negative I have for it, um, and again, I'm friends with the designer of that one too, so take whatever I say, I guess, with grain of salt for the last two. The biggest complaint is for two players, it took us probably three hours to play the game, and Jerry had read the rules and I had played the prototype before. I needed a rules refresher, because there are some rules, but it's pretty straightforward. The big thing is there's a lot of narrative in it. It's it's funny, you don't think of Euro games, and that's certainly what this is, with as Mm. much narrative as this one has, and as much reading and text. But I still had fun with it. It's a really good Euro game. It's just one of the only ones I've ever seen with that much narrative and that's that long. But it's worker placement. You're collecting resources, turning them into experiments. You're trying to do so many experiments. It's a Frankenstein-themed game. So you're basically trying to complete your father's work. Your father created the monster, Frankenstein's monster, so he may even show up. I don't want to give away too much, but every mission has like branching narrative so there's like nine different endings that could happen so it's not like you know what we always complain about all the time where it kind of comes back to the same narrative it branches Mm -hmm. in different ways so we actually ended up turning the town into werewolves in our mission i'm not going to say what mission it was because you'll never know from the beginning like you just do stuff we uh ended up letting the werewolves be free and like defended their personal freedoms and (laughs) rights so that they start eating people. So it was, but again, it changes the way the game is played when you do that kind of stuff. So it's very cool. But at the end of the day, you don't feel that when you're playing it. Like I didn't feel like there were werewolves in the town because I was just placing my worker in different places. It might've like cost more or whatever because of that, Mm. but it's just changing the board state and things like that. But it's not necessarily changing the fact that it's still a worker placement slash collecting resources Euro game. Nice. You know, there is one I forgot if we're talking about competitive games. This one has solo co-op, but it's not the best way to play. And that's uh, Enchanters. I know we played this, like, I think a single time on TTS, Peter, with Jeremy Howard popped up. This is one where, like, you have, like, a a row of cards and you pay more to go further in the row. And you're, like, getting items and enchantments and, like, kind of upgrading your stats and then also fighting monsters. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar. It does. But, uh... This game is fantastic. Like, I forgot how good it was. I haven't broken it out in a while. And it's a huge box. I was like, man, should I keep this game? 
I mean, it helps my kids love it. Like, even my six-year-old is now able to fully play this game, and he, like, requests it. And it's just sitting upstairs. Like, it hasn't even, it's not even, like, in the game room. We just throw it on the rug and play for a while. So, That's cool. Um, it's so much fun. And it's, it's like one of the most straightforward while still being satisfying, like tableau builders. Cause in a way that's what you're doing because like every card you get is leveling you up in some really appreciable way. And then you're fighting bigger and bigger monsters with those abilities. So, and is it just um, whoever gets the most points or kills the most yep, points worth yep. of monsters type? Yeah. And there's tons yeah. of like, if you get the big box with all the expansions, there's tons of ways to make it more complicated with like bosses you can go after and quests you can fulfill and like varied starting things you don't all start the same and you have different bonuses but we're just playing super vanilla and just switching out which uh cards we use because again with the giant box they sent us there's like 30 different decks to mix and match so like today we played with the medusa and they had a totally different mechanic that like they had really super good cards but then they would make you heavy like you would turn to turn stone, to stone a right yeah <laughs> yeah so you'd have to pay more to like go further in the track so like you couldn't you didn't have as much freedom to get stuff, but you were way more powerful. So it was like a really cool dynamic. I don't know. It's a very clever, well done game. And I'm, it's, it's one of my favorites again for competitive play. The solo co-op is like passable. It's a bonus <laughs> basically. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, we are gamers, right? Like we talk mostly about co-op and, you know, at some points only about co-op, but we do like all kinds of games. So, and you know, if co-op's not the best way to play it, you know, and we've played it other ways. We'll tell you that too. Like, for example, Ark Nova, I do think is better multiplayer than it is solo. It's mm. passable solo, but I do think it's better. And I feel the same way about Dwellings of Eldervel. I think the solo <laughs> mode was fine in that one, but it was another one that was very good competitively. A lot of these Euros, I think, are better competitively, but there are definitely some that are better. And maybe that's a topic we'll cover. Maybe our top like five. We never do like just top five lists. Maybe we'll talk about our top five Euro solos, which I'm sure you'll have a lot to talk about there, Mike. <laughs> I mean, I have several that I like. The ones that are good for me and like stand a test of time are very clear in my head. So that'd actually be pretty easy for me to make a list for. Easier than most because... You know, if you're like favorite deck builders, I've got like 20 or 30 floating around in my head. If you're like favorite solo Euros, there's like I could count on one hand the ones that I would actually want to put on a table and play right now. You know what I mean? Well, that's good because for a top five Euros list. tend to be better for right. competitive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But anyway, Hour of Need. Uh, let's get into Hour of Need. We also forgot oh. to mention that our uh, design discussion is going to be on... Publishers. So this is going to be a little bit different way of looking at things. And part of the reason, and we'll put it in disclaimer up front, is we're reviewing Our Need, which is from Blacklist Games, which we have a game that is both signed and announced, and some people actually have it, even though you and I don't. Yeah, so we just thought we'd talk about different publishers, how to talk to publishers if you're a designer, how to pitch games, like where to go to pitch games, just some different ideas on how to approach publishers and maybe some things to think about as you are approaching publishers. Yeah, but uh, first we'll do Hour of Need. So theme, Peter, this is not too hard. (laughs) Yeah, so the theme is you are fighting a boss in an environment. And so there are different heists that the boss are trying to do, and there are different environments they are trying to do it in. Unlike something like... Do you want to mention who your characters are, Peter? Well, you're kind of... Oh, you're superheroes. I'm sorry. Yes. This This is a superhero game. I should have mentioned that. You know, unlike Sentinels of the Multiverse, where they like 
kind of like you can see the origins of all of them. You can kind of see here as well. But they, I do think they do some unique things, at least in the core box. Like the Wait, one I was going to say, in the expansions, they are less unique. Like they have clear Batman and Robin, clear Joker. Like they're kind of more obvious. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So the one that sticks out to me is the one that's clearly like trying to be like Ant-Man. But he's not exactly Ant-Man because he's just a really small person, like an Ant-Man size person. But then he's in like this mech suit. Like one of his forms is the mech suit, so which is a normal size person. So yes, it's it's going off some tropes, but in a unique, interesting way. Sure, and yeah. So mechanically, um, this is so this is a very similar to some of the other modular deck system games from Blacklist, designed by the Sadler Brothers. The one it's most similar to is Street Masters, but the basic idea is you have your hero decks. They each have a unique deck of cards. Uh, you're drawing cards from them. Some of them like become persistent upgrades for your character. Other ones like give you different powers that are one-off things. Then you've also got a deck for, in this case, the issue, which is kind of like the stage in Street Masters. It's whatever nefarious thing the villain is trying to achieve, like robbing a bank or uh, stealing these robots from a factory. And then finally, you pick the villain themselves, which is going to determine like the primary minions you're fighting and also who the final bosses you have to defeat. So each of these elements has a deck. It's similar to Sentinels of the Multiverse. It's similar similar to Street Masters, Brook City, Alter Quest, all that stuff. But uh, on your actual turn, each player can take two actions. Actions are like moving, fighting, uh, solving, which is used to kind of forward these cards you need to like solve before you can fight the boss, before you like discover how to fight them, basically. But then you can also play cards from your hand, like out of turn, or they might cost actions. Whenever your action's done... Two actions, you pause the play because it's kind of like simultaneous take actions whenever order you want. And you resolve a threat turn where like enemies charge towards you and attack. And then uh, the villain also has a turn where you draw some cards and resolve these icons to like spawn more minions or advance the villain in their plot. And then finally you have like a, a card for the issue itself for like the stage that will again usually help the villain kind of advance. So you're trying to stop them, solve things, like kind of tamp them down. They're trying to achieve their thing. Eventually, if you do well, you're going to just be punching the boss. And if you punch him enough, then you win. If they uh, complete their heist or whatever they're trying to do, then you lose. That's kind of the basics. So, and there's it's dice based uh, combat and resolution. We'll, we'll I'm sure we'll talk about that in the review. So we'll yep. leave it there. So if it's your first time joining us, thank you. What we do here is we cover the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important thing, and going to number one, which is our most important thing. Of course, they're all important, or we wouldn't bother wasting your time or our time talking about them. So, uh, Mike, do you want to get started with your number five? Sure. So my number five is looking at the villains out of the three like modular elements. Uh, when I did my video review, I called this a pro. But then I had like a big caveat at the end. So I'm just going to call it a mix here <laughs> because uh, so the things I like about the villains, they have different minions in their deck. So like different kind of like sort of minor enemies that will pop out. They have these things called perils that will pop out on the board in consistent spots and you have to like solve them or negative things will happen. They have a effect kind of similar to KDM where when you're attacking the villain, you flip a card and it might like have them do like some kind of surprise attack back to you or respond to you in some way. And then they have other cards in their deck that are unique. They have unique powers. Some of them have more or less armor. Some of them like use tokens in different ways or steal tokens from you. So I think in general, they're they're pretty varied. They're pretty interesting. Uh, the big negative that I think could bring this down to a mix is that in the core game, at least, you only get two of them. 
which I think looks pretty bad in comparison to some of these other similar games. Like Sentinels of the Multiverse has uh, six villains in the new core box. Uh, Street Master has had four armies, but three bosses for one of them. So kind of six villains there as well. So two villains only if you just get the core is, you know, a little bit weak in my opinion. Yeah, and one of them's super basic. <laughs> yeah. The first one you play, like, literally just is one damage, no special stuff. The other one is a little bit more going on, but definitely the first one is a first villain that they want you to play against. Yeah. Very not complicated, all that stuff. Now, you do get variety when you mix and match it with different scenarios. I will yeah. say, uh, well, maybe this is a more other point. Uh, I don't think it's in my five, though. Like, I think it's better than some of their games they've done in the past with... So far, I haven't had a villain and, like, scheme, villain scheme, that, like, didn't work fine together. Whereas in Street Masters, there's definitely some weird combinations. And maybe, look, there's a lot of expansions for this game, too, right? So maybe in some of the expansions, there is some of that. My review is basically from the base game. I did play some of the Kickstarter stuff, but... I mean, all that seemed to work. And typically that's the stuff. If something's going to break, it's going to be some of the Kickstarter stuff where they like throw it together last minute. But I didn't see those bad interactions, unlike with some of those other games. So yes, the two villains sucks. But between that and the schemes, I do think there's some replay, at least in the base game. Sure. All right. So my number five is the clue cards. So these clue cards are basically (laughs) little rewards you get for doing certain things in the game. So for defeating these little minions on the board, or as Mike said, the villain deck might bring out these like bigger minions that you fight and can take out. There are bystanders that are trickled around the map and then they might get captured and you can go rescue them or you can save them while they're still on the map. When you do that, you get these clue cards. And what the cards do is they give you an option. So Pretty much everything in this game seems to give you an option, which is probably one of the better things about this compared Mm. to the other games they've had in the past, at least from my memory of them. So the clue cards give you two options. You can either use them for dice, so they'll have a certain number of dice on the top. So whenever you do a test, you're rolling dice. They will either give you more dice for that test, and you can discard as many of them as you want to add as many dice as you want to your test. Or on the bottom, they'll have an ability like do a free move or do a free attack. And there's a lot of these type things that give you free stuff that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And it's a hard choice because depending on the situation you're in, one thing might be better than the other and or maybe you just want to do something more than you want to do something else. Like you're like, I don't trust my luck here. I'm going to throw in a couple extra dice because I feel like I need it. Even if I'm giving up free like move actions or, you know, I call it thwarting, but it's not, it's, it's solving, I guess, uh, actions later on. So yeah, that's my number five is the clue cards. I think this is pretty much a pro. It like gives you new options as you do little things. And in fact, you're torn a lot of times like you have all this bad stuff going on on the board but you also like want to solve all these problems so you can progress to end game but these you know you don't want to go out of your way to do these little things sometimes but a lot of times you need those extra dice or you need the whatever to kind of help with the main problem you're solving so i do think it creates an interesting tension between going and doing those things and then working towards either fighting fires or progressing towards the end game Yeah, no, I totally agree. I sort of lumped the clue cards in with like my discussion of the dice system, but you're right that they do offer kind of more action options beyond that. So I think it's great. My number four is the issues. There's like the second kind of opposing element with the villain. So I sort of (laughs) had these uh, together. Yep. And 
probably my favorite part of this, because this is a mix of pros and cons again. My favorite part of them uh, is that each of the issues and in the in the core game, you get four of them. Each of them has uh, four unique cards and each player starts with a random one. So at four players or higher, you're always going to have all of them. But, uh, you know, I was mostly playing with one, two, or maybe three heroes. Then you have a random mix of these, like, uh, kind of starting schemes or issues, whatever they're called. And they all tend to be saved or, like, solved the same way, but they have unique effects when you flip them. And I really thought this was fun. They have, like, a little narrative in the book if you want to kind of see what the story is. So sometimes they'll spawn a mini-boss, and sometimes they'll spawn an ally you can go and use, but they do something negative if you don't use them enough. Sometimes they like uh, spawn a location that does something special. So I thought these were like really cool and added a lot of variety to the issues. The part of the issues that I didn't think was as well done, all of them kind of, as Peter mentioned already, give like the, the boss a way to advance and you a way to kind of slow them down. And even though they have different mechanics for how that worked, the more I played them, the more it sort of felt the same, if that makes sense. Yep. Like, yes, in this one, I'm punching robots. And yes, in this one, I'm like walking over and grabbing tokens. But in the end, it like sort of felt like the same distraction. I felt like even though Street Masters was more fiddly in how these work, I did think I think they got the uh, streamlining of like the villain and issue cards down way better. It's way easier to run this game than Brook City or Ultra Quest or Street Masters. But I do think Street Masters as a pretty direct comparison had more uniqueness to the stages. Yeah. Like the stage where you were like fighting in an arena felt very different from the stage you were trying to like stop the people from like the cartel from getting drugs. So yeah, I think it's not as successful here, but I do really appreciate the starting like four cards. I think those are pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't cover this one either, but you're right. Especially playing solo, you could almost like go through the four different ones, even if you had the same boss. You do the four different ones and the game would play different. And it's funny because I'm flipping over these environment phase cards or whatever, and I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? I don't even understand what it's telling me to do. And a lot of times, because it has to do with one of those four different phases. So like the the robot one, it was like kept talking about super bots. I'm like, what the heck's a super bot? But you don't even know about it unless you actually get that one specific phase card or whatever. So you solve that one problem and then it releases these super bots. Well, and that was actually a part of the negative for me. Okay. Sameness, because while the four cards were cool, what you're talking about, the issue cards, you flip one issue card every turn. A lot of them would just do the most basic thing and be like the villain schemes, the villain schemes. And I didn't feel the uniqueness in that deck because they relied on those other four cards. And especially, again, at lower player counts, like Peter's saying, so many of the cards wouldn't do anything special. They would just do the exact same thing. So it led to kind of like that issue deck feeling consistently. Yeah, blah, same. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. yeah. So my number four is not that phase, but it's a different phase, which is the enemy phase. And the enemy phase, each player is going to flip over one of the cards from the villain deck and you resolve the card. Now, sometimes it is adding something to your threat area, which is, you know, something you'll either have to deal with or deal with the consequences of. Sometimes it just has these icons across the top, which Mm -hmm. basically says add minions to certain panels. There's like four panels on the board, which basically is where all the action happens. And it's like add a minion to this panel. Some of the icons basically say the villain schemes, which is different from Marvel Champions. So that really threw me off. Scheme basically means whatever panel they're, they're in, read the box above it or below it and it like tells you what they do 
But another box has a unique icon also, which says basically read the card text below. And those were some of my favorite ones because those added the most flavor to what the villain was doing. That and the icon that says the villain schemes, because basically then they're doing whatever it is they need to do to progress and win the game. But I also like some of the things that made those villains unique, which were the things that referred to the card itself. So I thought it was a good job. Again, a little mix. I think a lot of the negatives I have for this game, and again, this may just be a core box issue, were this feeling of sameness as you played the game. But as far as streamlining goes, I think they did a great job here. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that. I, I do think the villain-like phase works really well. I think it's quick. I think there are some varied effects, but they also keep it pretty streamlined. My number three, I'm pretty sure you like this too, Peter, based on previous games in the series, but that's uh, the dice And I've said it before, I really love the way the Saddlers do dice resolution. It's inspired some of our upcoming designs and how we do dice. So if you haven't seen this in previous games, the basic idea is, you know, you roll dice to attack, you roll dice to try to resolve these crises. But the miss sides, as they were, give you these tokens called focus tokens that basically can be spent for successes in future tests. Or a lot of the characters use them for different abilities. Or five of them can be used to flip your character over to like their super side and give you like bonuses to your stats or an awesome super ability. So I just like this. I mean, I've talked about it before, but it makes bad roles not feel bad. It gives you more resources to manage. And I like resources that make you feel more powerful and give you more choices and like your actions. And uh, the superpower like sides are cool. And also, they they still have the exploding crits, and I tend to like exploding crits only for you, not for the enemies. So you can get these big attacks and like feel awesome when you get lucky, especially when, like Peter said, you spend two clue cards and roll like eight dice and just totally wallop somebody. I think that works really well. So I, I have, and I continue to enjoy the dice system, and I think in some ways it's even better here because they found more ways to use focus tokens, and I think those clue cards kind of interact with the other stuff in a nice way. Yep, I will talk about that at some point. My number three is the just the structure of the game. First of all, I think they pull off simultaneous better here than a lot of games have pulled off simultaneous. Mm. You could do your actions in any order. And again, you only have two actions on a turn, but a lot of the things you do aren't actions. So mm. on your turn, you have those clue cards we talked about. You could play to do things basically for free. In duplicate cards in the player decks there are cards you can use to do stuff for free. And actually, I'm going into a little bit of the player turn. I don't want to go too much into that here. But the enemy phase, as we talked about, it's very fast. The player phase, the simultaneous nature of it is really interesting. And then the environment phase, again, as we talked about, you're just flipping over a card. And even though a lot of times those effects are uninteresting, at least it keeps the action on the player's turn. So that's, that's the big part about structure I wanted to emphasize here. Even though you're doing the enemy phase and then you're resolving everything in front of you, and you're doing this environment card. I'll be honest, the first couple of times I played it, I didn't love this structure. It felt like there was too much going on, but it's almost like Marvel Champions to me. The first couple of times I played it, it was a lot, right? Oh my gosh, the enemy phase, you got to add threat and then they attack you and then you got to resolve a card. You're doing all that in this game too. It's basically a lot of the same kind of stuff here, like where it's like three different things the enemy's doing, but it's also fast. All the action happens on your turn. And that's one thing I love about this, not love, That's one thing I really liked here, and that's one thing I obviously love in Marvel Champions. So I like the fact that it keeps the action on the player's turn. Yeah, I'm kind of looking at the structure, too, for my number two. Uh, Another mix, a lot of mixes here. And that's the pacing in the game and how it ramps up. 
So the idea is that the villain is advancing and they go like from these, there's four scheme panels and basically it's kind of representing them being further along in their plan. And usually when they're on a later scheme panel, it gets tougher for you to kind of hold them back. And then you're solving your like starting issues. Then you have to do enough solving with the villain themselves to make them vulnerable. And then finally you attack them. So that's like the general race of the game. And this is a mix because sometimes it works out well. Sometimes the give and take of trying to stop their scheme while also advancing your own goals. Sometimes that reaches a nice balance that can be player count dependent. It can be like villain and issue dependent. I've had games where it was balanced very nicely, but then the negative side of this comes in. And this is also, you know, I'll be honest, this is also the case in Street Masters. It's also sometimes the case in Sentinels. Like all these games that give you the option to just punch the boss, you know what I mean? Or like go directly for your goal instead of like kind of managing things. I guess you could even say this about Pandemic to an extent. They all sometimes have like things where like the pacing just goes off in one way or another. I just feel like it's more common in this one. I've definitely had issues where it was very easy for me to keep the boss at like the earliest level. And if they never get beyond that first scheme panel, they really don't accelerate enough usually to be dangerous. So then the game kind of becomes like a cakewalk. It's not going to happen all the time, but it is there. I don't think they quite got the balance between the prevention and the goal chasing quite right. Like not as well as something like Pandemic where I think the balance is like consistently there and the tension is consistently there. Did you ever lose the game? Yes. Okay. Only a couple times. I didn't, you know, I, I know the the bosses in the expansions are supposed to be tougher. Um, and also there are ways to, even in the base game, to make the game harder by including uh, one or more mini bosses like right from the start. Did you do that? I did it once and that was one of the games I lost. So it does seem to do what it intends to do. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, m- maybe this is on me. Maybe I'm just not challenging myself enough. But going back years, it reminds me a little bit of, like, Hogwarts Battle, where, like, it was a little too easy sometimes to kind of keep things in a stasis at the beginning. Again, it didn't happen all the time. Even when I won, often it was a good win and an interesting win. But yeah. sometimes the pacing just fell off, you know? The only time I had that is when we played a five-player game, and that was just ridiculous. That Don't ever sure. do that. Let me tell you, there's options for five and six-player. Don't ever, ever do that. We'll talk about player count even later. It's not one of my points, but as with a lot of these games, I think they're best at two or three players. Even solo, I think, works out fine here, but five players was too much. The pacing was way off there, way too much downtime. Even though the turns are simultaneous, it's just too much to keep in your head. There's just so much stuff going on. But I will say I did find the game on the easier side, but it never bothered me. I haven't lost. But again, I never challenged myself. I never added extra villains, whatever. I've taught the game a couple of times. So like, you know, there was there was never really an opportunity or even a desire to add in the the more difficult stuff, even though I have won it pretty consistently. I feel that way about like Spirit Island, too. Like I never wanted to ramp up the difficulty, even after I kept winning more and more. You know, it's just like, all right, this is the right level of complexity. I don't want to add any more and like throw it off. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Sometimes that's a difficulty issue, right? When a game is too easy, it doesn't feel satisfying. I did not feel that way this time, but I certainly see how you could. In our five-player game, we didn't even finish. We're like, yeah, we're going to kill him in three turns. We knew we had it under control, as you're saying, and we just didn't even bother finishing. Yeah, Uh, yeah. All right, so my number two is the player turns. And that's why I was like, oh, wait, I just got into this a lot in my last point, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But I do like simultaneous player turns. I do like 
that even though you only have two actions and they're very basic, like move through spaces or attack or solve a problem where you are. I love the fact that the cards can be used for multiple things. Like again, the cards Mm -hmm. in your hand, some of them are constant cards, which you play in front of you and are constant. And there's always duplicates of every card. So if you get a duplicate of those constant cards, because you can only have one in play, a lot of times they'll have an icon in the corner. And that icon will let you move anywhere on the board for free or do an attack for free or do a solve for free or defend because that's literally the only way you can stop from taking damage in the game is playing these defend cards which will block up to three damage from you so there was a lot of good stuff that you're doing on your turns very puzzly lots of good options and everything seemed like a choice do i add more dice do i exhaust this card and i even love how they have like exhaust effects and sometimes Mm -hmm. they were on the constant card itself that you got but sometimes it's like exhaust your hero to do this and your hero might have other effects that they could exhaust to do like one of the heroes exhausts to move or attack right so now right there you have an option or exhaust to give yourself a focus token or you get a new card that says exhaust to like do something else there's just so many choices I guess that's the bottom line. It gives you a lot of choices to solve the problems that are in front of you. Now, we'll talk about this in final thoughts. I don't know that all the choices in front of you are that interesting, but I do love the number of choices they give you to deal with the problems. And I do love that even though you're limited to two actions, you're not really limited to actions. You're doing a lot more than that on your turn. So my number two, the player turns. Again, I think it's another pro, which is crazy. This is like the first Saddler Brothers game that I've given way too many pros to. What is going on here, Mike? What's going on? I don't know. My my number one is basically the same as yours, um, except I had some complaints as well. So I agree with all your positives. I think everything you said about the simultaneous play, about the action choices being really interesting is true. Uh, Some things I didn't like, I didn't think the hero balance was great. Some of them have consistent bonuses to the core actions and other ones don't which really made me feel like with those other ones I had to lean on clue cards, especially when I had bosses or issues that had armor that I had to like consistently get past. So that like wasn't always fun. Like some here didn't feel as fun to play. And then I do love uh, what you said, how like duplicate cards usually give you like a bonus action. But I did have like uh, the feeling sometimes that some cards in my hand were like just dead. Like maybe they weren't balanced well and they weren't worth playing or they didn't have a discard like option when I already had a card that was similar to it. Not too often, but those are like minor complaints. But generally, I agree. Um, I think the player turn is pretty interesting. I think you have resources to manage. I think you are like doing bonus actions and doing cool things. I think the heroes are pretty unique. Um, Oh, I guess one other complaint. Uh, The ongoing cards can make a huge difference in making your characters feel special and feel powerful. And I have had games where like some of the really important ones were both copies were at the bottom of my deck and I just didn't get them until very late. It's interesting to compare that to Sentinels, which could theoretically have the same problem, or Marvel. The newest version of Sentinels, the Definitive Edition, pretty much gave almost every character multiple cards that will find cards in their decks. So that, like, if your combos aren't coming, you get them faster. Yeah. Whereas both this game and I would say, you know, as much as I enjoy Marvel Champions, I would say that one too. Like, sometimes you just don't get <laughs> some of your characters, like, most important cards for their entire, like, engine to work. Until, like, the first go-through of the deck. Now, in fairness, comparing Marvel Champions to Hour of Need, you go through your deck in Marvel Champions much faster than And Hour multiple of Need, times so. a game, typically, too. Yeah, exactly, too. exactly. So, so yes. you're, you're never going to, like, be out of a card for forever. Whereas this one, yeah, like, that can be a little frustrating if, you know, your card that's, like, your character's key, plus one to every attack you do bonus that's incredibly important doesn't come out until the end of the game, you know? Yeah. 
Although, to be fair, you don't need to attack much early in the game. Usually, you're just yeah, solving okay. early. <laughs> yeah, you know, as I was saying that, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, well, you only really need to do attack when you get to the boss at the end. So, yeah, okay, fair point. <laughs> well, but if your solving help card doesn't come out or whatever, they do give you a sure. mulligan to help sure. with that. But yes, it. I mean, it could certainly happen where your constant cards don't come out. Now, I will say, and one thing I forgot about, is not all the cards have an action on them. So some cards cost an action to play, and some don't. And I think that they did a pretty decent job, actually, of balancing the yeah. ones that require an action with the ones that don't. The one thing they didn't do, and we found this out in our Fire Player game, was they didn't really balance player count very well for some of these cards. Because it's like, every player draws two cards and moves three spaces. That action is okay, in like a one or two player game in a five player game it's ridiculous right like yeah. like there there are definitely things that don't necessarily scale too well and that's so that's i guess one of the negative of some of the cards but i do like the fact that if it felt like it was a worthless card they did have that icon in the corner option they didn't use it all the time as you said or they didn't make it require an action so even if it wasn't that great a bonus it was basically a free play yeah but my number 1 since you haven't heard about it yet is the dice and it's weird, right? Because these dice were used in every game besides Street Masters they've done, right? Basically, Alter Quest. Street Masters had, like, they would give you the defense tokens, but it certainly was Oh, wasn't no, that was way same. different. Yeah, like, way different. Brook City, Brook City and on pretty much all use the same system of, like, these kind of successes in waiting, in a way. Yeah, so each of the dice has three successes on it. They have one side that is one of these successes in waiting, as Mike said, or what are they called here? The... Uh, Focus. focus tokens. Yep. And one has a success and a focus side, and another side has an exploding dice. And I love exploding dice. Mm-hmm. And that's something Street Masters definitely didn't have. So if you're comparing this to Street Masters, just the dice system in this is so much better. And honestly, I love this game in Buddy Cop, which is another one of their games that hasn't really mm-hmm. made it to retail yet. And maybe that game, I, I, I was thinking earlier, I actually liked it in that game better because the game around it was basically just finding you ways to get those dice. And in a lot of ways, it's the same here, right? It's like just trying to get ways to get you these successes. But I do think it's such a big part of this game. And this is the first game, well, beside Buddy Cop, where I actually felt like that was a standout feature to me. That is the thing I was trying to do. I was trying to get mm. to these dice. I was trying to get more dice. I was loving it every time I'd roll two explosion dice, or if I really need focus tokens, or if I really needed like four hits, but I only had three dice and I didn't get an explosion, but I got like that side that gave you a focus and a hit, and then I could turn that into a hit. Those were just some really exciting moments. So, I mean, I kind of feel like you need to like dice to like this game because the dice are such a critical part of it. And if you don't have fun with the dice rolling in this game, and again, I think for me, Buddy Cop does it better because it's just more streamlined and it just gets you to the dice faster. But for me, it was a standout feature of this game, and it's something I really liked. And I kind of said in the past that I thought the dice system was very similar to other dice systems. But the more I thought about it after playing this one, I really do think those focus tokens are such a unique aspect of it. I really think it's cool, and I really think they do a, a very good job here doing that. All right, so getting into final thoughts, I guess I can go first. I would say this is maybe my favorite of the Saddler Brother MDS games. Street Master is still might beat it just because even though I agree with Peter, the dice are better here. I do think like it feels a bit more unique 
and the movement and like tactical combat feels more impactful because like it is kind of more combat, whereas this is kind of more abstracted running around the board. But I do I have to give this credit. I think it is the like quickest and most streamlined and easiest to access of the MDS games. And I think they did a nice job with that. The tough thing with this one is I think it's so streamlined that I don't know when I would want to play this over Sentinels of the Multiverse personally. Yeah. Because this adds a board, but the board isn't really that interesting. And Sentinels, like, heroes and characters are so much more (laughs) unique and interesting. Sentinels is fiddlier, but I still play Sentinels with my six and nine-year-old, so it's clearly not that hard to use if you give them, like, easier characters. And then, like, Marvel Champions, I would not... Like, there's a lot of similar things going on, but I don't think the two games play similarly. No, they don't feel similar. I think our feels very different. But at the same time, I do think, like, Marvel Champions is a better superhero game and like hand management managing villain scheme while punching villain game and then if you you know and the the thing that this game has over both of those is the board but i think if you want more interesting board play i think street masters offers that more than this one like throwing enemies around and like you know hitting enemies into each other and that kind of stuff so yeah this one sort of lives in an odd middle ground now, that being said, I don't know how easy it is to get Street Masters. I don't know how easy it is to get this game. Blacklist is in a bad distribution place right now. Well, yeah. <laughs> but- Lord Palazzo actually says that in the comments. He says, this game is basically impossible to find right now. Publishers having major issues. And look, yeah. we, we told you, we, we have a game by Blacklist <laughs> that is basically in the same limbo right now. And you may ask us what's going on with that game. And I will tell you, we have no idea. Uh, we well, they, they did do an update. So, yeah, our, our game is Mega Man Adventures. That and Buddy Cop and Contra and Naruto. I might have gotten that or Boruto. I think it's those three or four games. Supposedly in the last update, they said that they're shipping them like straight to people who pre-ordered them with air shipping and not even doing boats oh, like, wow. from China. And and I've had, you know, like other publishers that have done that. have had great success with that. And like the games have come in a nice, timely fashion. I have no idea if that'll be the case here because they've said other things about shipping and then they haven't happened. But yeah, in theory, maybe some people get the games. You know, what does that mean for retail availability? I have no idea. <laughs> but if they at least get them to people who pre-ordered them, that would be something. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and so that is a big caveat for this entire review. I feel the same way. Honestly, if it was up to me, I would play Buddy Cop over this. That's the one that jumps mm-hmm. out to me. But if you're looking for a superhero game and the board element is important to you, look, I mean, I'll compare it to you, going back to our Euro discussion. Castles of Burgundy versus Castles of Burgundy, the card game, which has 90% of the same mechanics, honestly, except you're flipping cards to get your dice results. And they take out the board element. And to me, that is a major element of Castles of Burgundy. Whereas here, I actually didn't miss it in Buddy Cop because there is a little bit of movement and there is a little bit of whatever. But I can see people who like miniatures, people who like the board play, wanting the board here. And so I don't think it's going to be the same for everybody. If you like the superhero over the cop theme, I think that's a big difference as well. But to me, both of the games have the same end goal, which is solve some stuff using a really cool, fun dice system. And that one just does it a lot more streamlined than it's done here. So for me, I would choose Buddy Cop over this, but it doesn't mean I don't think this has a home. Look, my first three, four, five games of this even, I wasn't thrilled with it. It it actually grew on me the more I played it. Mm. And I know we're talking about getting rid of it and that still may end up happening, but I do want to play it more before we do that. 
Whereas some of these other games, I was just done playing them and I didn't want to play them anymore. This one, at least I have a desire. And again, we only have the base stuff. So we're talking two, three villains and we're talking like four scenarios, but I still have interest in playing more of it just to to see what comes out of it. And I agree with a lot of your negative points. This is definitely my favorite MDS game, though. And again, unless you count Buddy Cop as an MDS, which I don't know that you sure. would. But um, it's definitely my favorite, even above Sentinels, because of, unlike you, I don't like the fiddly bits of Sentinels. Like, that that drives me away. I love what you're doing on your hero turn, but I also think your hero turn is much more limited in that game. And the... Mm to me, the ratio's off where you're doing more enemy stuff than you're doing player stuff because you basically have one action and you're, what, you play a card and you do an action? And I know there's ways of breaking that, but here you're doing like five or six things most turns to like one little enemy thing and one little environment thing. Mm -hmm. So take it for what it is. I know I didn't give an overall strong feeling one way or another because I don't honestly know where it's going to land for me right now. Like I said, if you asked me after my first game, I would have told you I'm never playing this game again. I think it's horrible. You play. You asked me after a bunch of my solo games, I was feeling like, wow, this is just really boring. But then as I played it more and the system went away in the background and mm-hmm. I just started playing the game and I started just doing the player actions, it became more and more interesting to me. And when I played it with my son today, we had a blast playing it. So this one has moved a lot for me over time. And I I mean, for Marvel Champions, it was the same way. Now, look, this is not going to become Marvel Champions for me by any stretch. But like my first couple of times, I was underwhelmed with it. And I think as you added more content there and as I played that game more and as I understood the mechanisms more, it became better and better for me. And and that's where this one is is coming for me as well. It's growing on me for sure. Cool, man. All right. So, yeah, uh, somewhat mixed on Hour of Need, but certainly we enjoy it it's just maybe not the best of its class or though maybe it is if you if you count the class as uh mds games that have miniatures and are not buddy cop <laughs> <laughs> well yes yes that is that is very that is a good there's a niche right there <laughs> like, like there's a niche within a niche uh but all right let's uh get into our design discussion so as peter said we're just going to talk a bit about uh finding the right publisher uh for those of you who are designing games out there I think we did discuss this a bit, like when we did our little episode on like kind of designer tips. Remember that episode, Peter? Yep. So yeah, if you want to hear a deeper discussion of this and related issues, maybe go check out uh, that episode. But uh, the, the first advice I would give is, is kind of a basic one. Pay attention to what the company has already published and what you know is maybe coming from them before you pitch to somebody. And you want to find that happy medium where it's both in their wheelhouse, but not something they've already done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep, exactly. So, like, if it's a company that has literally only ever done sci-fi games, and that seems to be really important to them, yes, you can pitch them a fantasy game, but it might be too far outside their comfort zone. But on the other hand, if they've already done, like, a big dungeon crawler, and you're trying to sell them another big dungeon crawler, they might feel like that would be kind of uh, cannibalizing their own sales. Yep. But it could go the other way. Some companies like become known for only doing war games. Some companies become known for only doing dungeon crawlers. And then as long as yours is different enough from the other ones they already have, it might just kind of be building on the audience they've already built. So yeah, so basic idea is do some research and be aware of what's out there for them and what they are likely to potentially be interested in. Yeah, another thing that kind of goes along with that is if they make games you like, you tend to design games you like yourself also. So like, look at the companies whose games you really like. 
and go talk to them. Because if you like them, it's probably, there's a lot of things. When I first started designing, when we first started designing, gosh, I don't even remember how many years ago at this point, 10, 12 years ago, more than that, maybe. We were like, oh, mechanics over components, over artwork, over everything. And we've learned over time that that's just not true, right? Some games do very well because the publisher just had a great idea for components, whatever else. Mm. And like, it does raise it to another level. Look, cheap A games, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at that, you know, used to make games where they wouldn't even give you all the components of the game. They're like, oh, you have dice at home. Just use the <laughs> dice you have, right? And some of their games were actually probably pretty good. Like if you look at some of them, like Lightspeed or whatever, I mean, that turned into Hiroshima mm. Hex with way better production values. I mean, a very similar gameplay though. And like, Nirishima Hex just did way better because of all that production they put into it and all the the stuff they put in. So publisher is certainly a huge, very important part of the game. So if you like a publisher's games, they're probably doing things with components that you like. And they're probably making games that are tactical and visually, you know, with their art style that they use or whatever. Because, I mean, yes, they might change from game to game, but usually they either have somebody with a good eye for art or they don't. So a lot of that stuff from those publishers, like they're going to come up with similar quality stuff. So if you've done a great design, you want somebody who has the other elements that are going to complement your design. So that's a big, important part. And again, if they make games you like, you probably made a game you like. So, you know, those two things tend to go together. So that's a good place to start looking. Another thing I'll say is not mentioning anybody, but we've had publishers who flaked out on us or like dropped the design or just like kind of went nowhere with the contract it's not always clear with this kind of stuff but i do think like things are coming out in the industry more these days so do a bit of research on how the publisher's most recent games have gone you know do they have multiple unfulfilled games do they communicate well on kickstarter like do they seem to have a professional staff going on and you know let's be fair i say staff but a lot of publishers are like two people or one employee and some and like some contractors they work with and that's okay. But even then, like, are they responsive? Like, look at their games on BGG forums. Look at their games on Kickstarter. Look at their games on GameFound. Do they talk to people or do they not? Do they do updates or do they not? All of those kind of things are going. And this this is a good advice also for when you're buying games, <laughs> especially if you're doing a crowdfunding thing where, like, you're kind of uh, putting it up to fate and you can't just buy the game right then in retail. Th- there are many clues as to how professionally the company is being run and that professionalism can run into their likelihood of actually seeing your game through. Cause again, we've had publishers that have gone well and then things have just been dropped and, and only afterwards where we're like, Oh, this publisher's reputation is not that great. Or they don't, they don't communicate with a lot of people. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think it's good to do your research in a different way, not just the games that they're doing, but also like their kind of track record and the thing is, it can be so exciting. Like we speak this uh, from experience. It can be so exciting when somebody's finally like, we want your game. But if there's a high likelihood with that publisher that you're actually consigning your game to some kind of development hell, and then it's never going to see the light of day anyway, and you'll have wasted time. And maybe that game's moment will have moved on without you. You know, that's not great. <laughs> and that's as exciting as it is to have somebody finally want what you made and you've worked so hard and it might see the light of day. You want to be a little circumspect and careful, depending on what your research shows you, I think. Yeah, and I have a point with that that's actually even a point of advice for ourselves. But before I get to that, just kind of tagging on to what you said, it it is very important to do your research on the publisher. And when you sign a game, it doesn't mean it's going to come out. 
I mean, as yeah. much as you get excited about it, you tell all your friends, you tell all your family, like, it's almost like you shouldn't just because things can happen. It's good to get excited about it, but just because it's signed does not mean that it is eventually going to get published. Like, there is a lot that can go wrong between signing <laughs> and the publishing of the game. Especially these days, you know, we've seen with COVID, it's not just our industry, but it's certainly affecting this one, like companies that were making things work. Many of them are not able to make things work anymore. You know what I mean? Like shipping has just gone up so much. So, But to go along with that a little bit is I almost say once you get your game designed, depending on the publisher and depending on what they want from you, it's not necessarily a bad idea to detach yourself from that game and start working Mm -hmm. on something else or start doing something else. I mean, hopefully the game is fully complete when they've signed it anyway. And if it's not, then certainly work with them whenever they ask for you. But I know we've gotten to the point where we've been a little bit antsy because we're like, all right, nothing's happened with this game in two, three, four months. And you know what? Sometimes that's just going to happen. They're working on other projects. They're doing whatever else. You're excited about your game because it's your baby and you're super excited because it's signed. But I would detach myself a little bit if we do ever go with the publisher again, because now we're actually publishing our own games just because that, that relationship has been frustrating for us in the past. You know, you said some of our games have been dropped. Most of our games have been dropped even after they've been signed and we've done all this work and they're like, Oh, develop in this way. And we do it exactly what they want. And they're like, yeah, 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 this is great. This is exactly what we want. And then it just sits there and sits there. And then we would a lot of times get anxious and be like, well, forget it. We're done with you, right? And maybe they were like a month away from signing or whatever else. Whereas I think if we moved on and like, you know what? We're done our part. Let's move on to our next project. And yes, those maybe those games sit in limbo for a while. But you pushing them is not necessarily going to get the game out any faster. So I think sometimes you need to uh, show some patience yourself when working with a publisher. And just you know work on something else to keep your mind busy. So you're not always thinking about that one game. Yeah, and I th- this kind of applies to any creative thing. To go on a side tangent for a second, my wife is like trying to become an illustrator and author. So she got a graphic novel signed and was like just waiting for the contract to come and waiting to like sign off for the money. And just like Peter said, rather than focusing on that and kind of just getting fully anxious about that, she started working on her novel and she focused on her next project. And lo and behold, uh, shipping industry and publishing industry and all that stuff, it looks like maybe now the first book won't be signed. And she's bummed out about that, but it's she's drastically less bummed because she has an almost finished book now from her second project ready to go. Or like Peter and I, you know, we have some frustration with the Mega Man game, but now we've got this game that we're going to publish that's almost done. We've got our next game after that with some thoughts on it. So I know like some designers, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, and sometimes your game is so complicated that, you know, you need to put all your soul into it for years and years. But And that's us. Um, Let's be honest. I mean, a lot of our games, we live and die with each game we do. We're not those kind of designers that put a month or two in and then like, all right, publisher, sure. you fix it and make it come out. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to not love it. I'm just saying you got to detach yourself or you go crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I think... And not just attach, but yeah, like have have a few pans in the fire at different stages of development. It just gives you something to work on whenever things get negative or or slow or whatever. Yeah. What do you think the best way to pitch to a publisher? And I know we've had limited success, but we have had multiple games signed at this point. And again, they didn't all come through. But what were your favorite ways to pitch to people? Like live, online? How do you schedule appointments? I think... The most successful ones for us have been where we actually played the game with them. Yeah. 
we've had several pitches where we just kind of like talked them through things and that was enough for them to like kind of move forward. But those also often felt like the ones where things then got stalled later. And we sometimes would be like, Oh, I don't think you actually know how the game feels. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, yes. you've never played this game and we're like already signing a contract and all of that. So yeah, my favorites and quite honestly, the games that have actually happened um, have been the ones where like, on TTS or in person at a convention or whatever, like we've sat down and played the game with them or a partial game. Like sometimes they don't have time for an entire game. We've done pitches that have been successful that have just been like, here's a description of our game and here's what it's similar to. And here's like some pictures and we'll answer some questions about it. But yes, for me, definitely like getting them to play the game and seeing their eyes hopefully light up when they have fun with some part of it is the ideal way. Yeah, and we've had really good success at conventions like Unpub because there's quite a few publishers. They're not the biggest ones always out there, but there are some bigger ones. I know Pandasaurus and Renegade have definitely been out there quite a bit in the recent past. But I think conventions like Origins, too, where it's a little bit smaller convention, Gen Con... I don't know. I know people pitch games at Gen Con all the time. I don't think it's ideal for that because they're busy trying to sell their games. That's when their new releases are coming out more times than not. And honestly, if they don't have a release at Gen Con, maybe it's not necessarily the right publisher, right? Like, because I don't know if they've thought it out well enough if they aren't, you know, part of that wave. I don't know. There's just always a lot going on around Gen Con, but I've had good success at Origins, PAX even near the end of the year, uh, Unpub. But also, I mean, I think the best experiences we've had with games that got signed and then to published are experiences where we've known somebody, right? So it's just networking. It's not necessarily even going to Gen Con or Origins with a game that we had to get signed or whatever else, right? Like, I don't know that that always works. But for the Mega Man game, we were contracted to do that with just an idea, as you said. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we knew the Sadler Brothers. And so because of that, we kind of had an in, they, they'd seen our design pedigree, they needed something designed, and, you know, they trusted us with it after we kind of give them a basic proof of concept. And then, you know, you talk about Dark Dealings. We had worked with Brian on other games in the past. You talk about Salvation Road. I mean, that one, I guess we just met AJ there, but he had such a blast playing the game. You know, it was just like one of those instant loves at first sight. But, you know, those relationships were all either there or formed very quickly. So I do think those things are important, a personal relationship, not just a business relationship. And I know it doesn't always work out that way, but just with a lot of business, when you're networking, and I'm not saying just go try to make friends with people so they'll sign your game, but it does seem to work out better with people you know, because they have an interest in not just your game, but you as well. And yeah, I would say play your game with as many people as possible, because a lot of times the people that actually ended up signing our game was somebody that somebody else told our about our game or somebody else was like, hey, this person would like the game. So it kind of goes along with that whole like networking thing Peter's saying. But if you're like are passionate for your game, you have fun with it and you've designed it well enough so that other people have fun with it. If you're showing it to people at, you know, and this is kind of based on whether you can get to conventions, which is not always easy for people. And with, you know, the world being what it is, it's not always the safest thing, maybe. But uh, if you can get to them and just like show your game to a bunch of people and people play it and they have fun with it and you're not pushy, but you're enjoyable to be around, that can help a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things packed into that. Are you going to have an easier time if you're one gender over another or one race over another? And I think the board game industry says yes, <laughs> unfortunately. So just saying like network is maybe a little uh, <laughs> easy for us to say. But 
it, it is what tends to work for better or for worse. So Dr. Han asks a question. He says, all publishers you've pitched to actually gamers or have some of them just been business people? They're all gamers. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. people getting into this industry if you're not a gamer. There's just not enough money in it. There's really not. Like, nobody's gotten rich. Like, I mean, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure some people have gotten rich. Certainly, Alan Moon, I'm sure, has gotten rich. Like, with selling millions of copies. Like, Elizabeth Hargrave, I'm sure, has gotten rich out of this industry. But most people, and even most publishers, aren't getting rich off of this. Like, people think, oh, man, they made had a million-dollar Kickstarter. You know, they're rolling in millions of dollars at home. No, they're not. Most of that's going to expenses for shipping and this and that and the other thing. Some people even lose money on million-dollar Kickstarters because they didn't do the business sense right. I can't imagine somebody being just a business person, not in love with games. I've certainly never talked to a publisher that was that way. Yeah, I mean, and even the few companies I know that are kind of more like business oriented or like, you know, more <laughs> focused on that kind of stuff. They still hire people to look for games who are gamers. You know what I mean? So like even when you have maybe the higher ups and not being as focused on the industry and as much a part of the industry that's not who you're talking to like at a convention. That's not the people who are looking at your games. We've always pitched to people who know about games and play games. So yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that puts a pretty good bow on this part of the discussion anyway. Certainly, if you want to hear more, go to our tips for game designers. And if you want to know more, come join us on our Discord. It's free to join. We have a game design forum in there. We also have a Gen Con 2022 forum. So if you're going to go to Gen Con, reach out to me there. Maybe we'll meet up and play a game together while I'm at Gen Con this year. Any final thoughts from you? Yeah, that's uh, that's it. So yeah, love to talk to y'all. I've personally helped a bunch of like newer designers on Discord, just like talking to them about their games, or I've even tried out some on TTS, sort of mentored a few people. So we we are open to conversations <laughs> whenever we have time, basically. All right, Mike. Well, great discussion as always. And everybody out there, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list. Hey Mike. Yeah? I got a need. For speed? Do you have an hour? Oh. <laughs>